Well, it was on March 7th that we hit the road with Jesus. And along the way, we've learned many things, and at least these two things. First, we learned that Jesus is a man of sorrows, a man whose life began by emptying emptying himself of his divine prerogative and then continued on by enduring seasons of temptation and grief, as well as disdain and rejection. And second, we've learned that this road has been leading us to this very night. The culmination of all of Jesus' sorrows. A night on which, as Isaiah famously put it, the Messiah was smitten by God. Now, we could recount that smiting in any one of a number of ways, beginning with uh, the arrest of Jesus or the trial of Jesus or focusing on uh, the disciples' desertion or Jesus' torturous trek to the cross. But instead, we'll recount that smiting according to two verses that have already been read for us in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. I will read them again. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us to see these three painful hours in Jesus' life according to your good plan for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the main focus of our few moments together tonight is is simply this. It's the culmination of Jesus' sorrow, and specifically the response of creation to Jesus' suffering, which was darkness, and then the response of our Lord to his own suffering, which was forsakenness. So uh, there's going to be a somber thread running through tonight's talk, but take heart because we'll end on a hopeful note. I mean, Uh, Kenny asked a question at the outset, uh, why do they call this Good Friday? And there is a reason for that. And besides, two days from now, Eric Tonis will show us how the culmination of Jesus' sorrow led to the culmination of our joy. And that's good news. And I hope you'll be here on Sunday at 9 a.m. with a friend to hear more about it. Well, historians tell us that the Romans perfected crucifixion. It was mainly reserved for slaves and foreigners and political activists. Uh, Roman citizens were largely spared from hanging on the tree. When Jesus was uh, still just a little boy, probably a toddler, there was a Roman general by the name of Varus who came in and... uh, Uh, rounded up a bunch of Jewish rebels, 2,000 in number, and crucified them all. In fact, the Romans were known for crucifying men in mass. By the time of Jesus' death, 30,000 men had been crucified by the Romans, and that was just in Palestine. 
But all of these deaths, of all of these deaths, Jesus' crucifixion was unique. Since as the book of Matthew explains, Jesus was a king. A fact with which the book begins and on which it ends. And so as we come to Matthew 27, the second to last chapter in the book, it's no wonder that we see Jesus suffering as a king. Pilate privately queried him as a king, verse 11. Publicly referred to him as a king, verse 17. Jesus was crowned as a king, though with thorns, in verse 29. He was charged and mocked as a king in one, two, three, four different verses. But not only did Jesus suffer as a king, Jesus suffered as an innocent king. This is fascinating. His betrayer declared his innocence. His judge declared his innocence. Even the wife of the judge weaseled her way into the trial so that she could, at least to her husband, declare his innocence. All of these were compelled to make the statement that Jesus was innocent. And it was due to the fact that he was. Jesus was innocent. He was the innocent son of man because he was the perfect son of God. Meaning that he was the only suitable sacrifice for our rebellion against God. A sacrifice that was promised from the earliest pages of Scripture. A sacrifice required to bring an end to the power as well as the effects of our rebellion. So, to be sure, Jesus' crucifixion was not just another Roman execution. But an event of universal and cosmic proportions. The, the effects of which radiate throughout human history. From, from Calvary through all the ages leading up to it, and from that point, all the ages since and beyond. At 9 a.m. on the morning after his trial, the crucifixion of Jesus began. Three hours later at noon, we read, in verse 45, there was darkness over all the land. Darkness. How are we to understand this darkness that seemed to descend on uh, the scene of Jesus' crucifixion? Well, on one level, that darkness can be understood as creation's response to Jesus' crucifixion. Think about it. On, on the night that Jesus was born, on the night that Jesus was born, the, the dark sky was filled with light which seems a suitable response to this one who would be uh, later described by others, including himself, as the light of the world. So on the day that Jesus was crucified, the sky became dark. An equally suitable response to this one who came as light, but whose creation neither knew him nor received him and thereby remained in spiritual darkness. John chapter 1, John chapter 12. That's on one level. But on another level, the darkness can be understood as a sign. A sign of mourning foretold about that very uh, moment by the prophet Amos, who wrote these words. And on that day, declares the Lord, 
I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. You remember it was the Passover weekend and all your songs into lamentation. And I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Amos 8 verses 9 and 10. And so it was on every single count. The darkness can also be understood as a sign of God's curse, similar to his, his curse of darkness on the land of Egypt. You remember that was curse number nine, the one that preceded the final curse, which was the death of the firstborn. Of course, the darkness on the day of Jesus' crucifixion was three hours. In Egypt, it was three days. And of that darkness, Moses wrote, it was palpable. It was to be felt, Exodus 10, 21. And I'm sure as that darkness fell like a drape over the land of Egypt, so it was on the hours that Jesus was being crucified. The darkness can also be understood as a sign of Christ becoming sin. Now, the scriptures tell us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when darkness descended onto the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, it was clear that he who knew no sin had become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It, it, it was a horror that was intensified when you consider the following. While Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for all our rebellion, he was the person who was least prepared to experience it. Think about it. You and I know the pain and the guilt and the shame of sin. And further, you and I know that when we're guilty and we're punished for it, we deserve it. There's something about bearing up over a just punishment or under a just punishment. But for Jesus, none of that was true. He, he hadn't the slightest taste of sin's pain or guilt or shame. He was neither guilty of that for which he was accused nor deserving of that for which he was being punished. Because he was innocent, the undeserving pain was immense, causing even creation to recoil in darkness. But because he was innocent, Jesus assumed and eradicated what, as John Calvin put it, would have otherwise swallowed up mankind a hundred times over. How are we to understand the darkness that descended on the scene of Jesus' crucifixion as creation's response to the sufferings of Jesus and is a visible sign of our rejection and God's curse, God's smiting. Well, while creation responded to Jesus' suffering with darkness, our Lord responded to, to his own suffering, the, the darkness that enveloped his soul with a sense of forsakenness. In fact, it was so black that it provoked Jesus to cry out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, some of those who were standing nearby mistakenly thought Jesus was crying out to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. But those who knew better could tell that Jesus was crying out the opening words to Psalm 22. The son of David expressing himself with the words of his multiple great-grandfather, King David. In fact, the first 18 verses of Psalm 22 are a window into the agony of the cross. And well, we're through time tonight, sometime before bed, to um, read at your leisure in a quiet corner. Jesus felt forsaken. What does that even mean? Well, he felt deserted. One scholar understands our Lord to be saying, my God, my God, why have you let me down? Another scholar puts it like this. In that moment, Jesus expressed in human speech the fact that the pains and penalties of human sin were his. It, it was a cry at the uttermost of sin, having lost his vision of God. It was a cry at the uttermost of sorrow, conscious of his lack of God. Again, Calvin, there is nothing more dreadful than to feel God as judge whose wrath is worse than all deaths. It's important to note here that Jesus' agony is not from the beatings. It's not from the scourging. It's not from the humiliations. Rather, Jesus' agony was due to the feeling of separation from his father that becoming sin had brought upon him. You know, some people describe hell as just separation from God. And, and, and they go on to reason like this, that if, if that's all hell is, separation from God, then I'll live however I want now and simply endure separation from God later. I seem to be doing fine without him now anyway. Thank you. But on the cross, Jesus exemplified what it means to endure the horrors of hell. The feelings of separation from the Father. Jesus endured that for a time. Those who reject Jesus' sacrifice endure it for all time. So in all of this darkness, in all of this forsakenness, what makes Good Friday good? It's an excellent question. It's a question that was asked of my wife as she was taking a walk a couple of days ago. She was uh, strolling down Linda Vista with the dog and a car pulled up and the window rolled down and it was one of our neighbors and she said, I have a question for you. Why is Good Friday good? <laughs> I thought if anybody would know the answer, it would be you. And it's an excellent question. Where is the hope in all of this apparent hopelessness? All of this darkness, all of this forsakenness. What does this man of sorrows have that I would want or even need? Well, it's helpful to take note of something. Jesus did not die as a hero. Jesus did not die as a martyr. Jesus did not die as an innocent man wrongly accused. Because if he died in any of those ways, the Father would not have forsaken him. 
Rather, Jesus died not just to take on sin, but to become sin in total. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's why he was smitten. And in that way, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, delivered for our trespasses, cursed for our redemption. His chastisement brought us peace. His wounds brought us healing. His death brought us life. That's what makes the, this Friday a good Friday. That's, that's where hope is to be found, in our sorrows by way of the man of sorrows. Michael Green um, points out three quick things that in light of all this help us make sense of our own suffering. Green says, in the suffering of Jesus, we find an answer to suffering. We worship a suffering God, which is the best answer to any question about undeserved suffering. In Jesus' suffering, we find fellowship in suffering. When it feels like God has forsaken us, the cross reminds us that he has not. Jesus suffered for us in the past. He continues to intercede for us in the present that our faith may not fail. And in Jesus' suffering, we find a future to suffering. About two weeks ago, I had coffee with someone who has suffered uh, profound loss, deep and profound loss. And during our chat, this person testified to the good things that they have learned because of what God has done and they would have never known unless they had undergone this profound loss. It's remarkable. You don't find that in the world. You only find that in Christ and by way of his suffering. But this good news doesn't just get us through the moment. It gets us through this whole life. Since Jesus' afflictions with their darkness, with their forsakenness, make our afflictions comparatively light. And in this way, prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So as we come to the table tonight, laden with all of its sorrows and all of its sadnesses, we do so in anticipation of Easter Sunday when the empty tomb proves the goodness of this Friday, that Christ's body and Christ's blood were truly given for us.